Welcome back, beloved. Today we're continuing with the book of Daniel, chapter 11. We are in part one of what I hope to be three parts. And today we're going to be going uh, through verses 1 through 20. Uh, and I've subtitled this Prophetic History. And we really have no time to lose. It is so hard to fit everything I want to explain to you guys about these 20 verses in one video. So I'm going to jump right into it. I have sort of a, a couple verses I really want to share with you before we get into this prophecy. Just some quick review. Remember, this vision started in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. A message was revealed to Daniel. So this is about 536 BC that the prophecy of Daniel chapter 11 and 12 began. It unfolds jaw-dropping prophetic history, and, and I want to keep the timeline very basic. I don't want to keep you guys in timelines all day. Every single thing prophesied today, there's literally dozens of prophecies in this chapter, in these 20 verses that we're going to go through today, not even the whole chapter. We're going through dozens of prophetic, clear already fulfilled prophecies. I now totally understand why atheists and agnostics and many so-called Christians who are against the inerrancy of the Bible have to attack Daniel. There's no book like Daniel when it comes to specific fulfilled historical prophecies. I mean, it's, it's jaw-dropping. I will not do it justice over the next hour. You, you need to listen to many sermons on this chapter, many commentaries, but this vision began in chapter 10, and it's about 536 BC. Everything prophesied is about two to 300 years before it even takes place or more. Remember, about the prophecy in Daniel 10, uh, the angel comes and he says, I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. It goes from the Greco-Persian Wars to the Syrian Wars of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. It goes to Antiochus Epiphanes, and then it sweeps to the tribulation. And in Daniel chapter 12, it's going to go all the way to the resurrection, right? So very important. And finally, the angel says, I'm now going to tell you what is ins inscribed in the writing of truth. And now I understand, now that I've done a really deep dive into Daniel chapter 11, I understand why there's a whole chapter just announcing this coming prophecy. It's, it's jaw-dropping, excuse me, jaw-dropping, and it is true. It is so true, it is scary. However, before I jump into Daniel 11, I want to explain something. And this was in the foremost, I hope you're watching, I brought up a picture of Israel. This was in the foremost of my mind as I went through these prophecies. Most of the prophecies in this chapter have to do with the king of the north, the king of Syria, and the king of Egypt battling. And constantly Israel, this little nation, and the godly children in Israel, probably the smallest, the poor, the most despised people of that nation, right? God's true children. They're there, and they're just being rocked back and forth. Their land is being invaded. Different kings control them at different times. Crazy things are going on, and they literally have a book, a book of prophecy given by Daniel, and the true children of God, they must have been rejoicing, no matter how bad it got the whole time, 
over the vast amount of detail of everything going on around them. And you really just see the sovereignty and the wisdom of God. These great rich kings, Alexander the Great, Xerxes, you're going to hear about them all today, Antiochus in the north, Ptolemy in the south, they think they're wise. They think they have all these plans. They think they have everything figured out for conquest and conquering. And it's this little nation that really most people, even most professing Christians, even myself, probably couldn't find specifically on a map if you gave us a map and a pen. They know it all. The true children of God know it all through the word of God. And so I just have a few verses uh, just to get you excited about this. In Deuteronomy 32, you know, Moses gives the children of Israel the law, all of it. And at the very end of all the law, there's all these prophecies. And he says, remember the days of old and consider the years of all the generations Ask your father and he will inform you. Ask the elders. Uh, go, go back to the ancient ways and look for wisdom. They're going to tell you something and this is what it is and it's wisdom. When the Most High, when the Almighty gave the nations their inheritance, God is sovereign over every nation, it says. He separated the sons of man. He set the boundaries of the peoples according, so important, to the number of the sons of Israel. I might make a video on just this one day, but if you look at the table of nations in Genesis 10, there's about 70 nations. There were about 70 children of Israel. Paul in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, says God made from one man every nation of mankind, and he determined their appointed times, when they would be successful, when they would go through famine and be weak as a nation, and the boundaries of their habitation. And when Balaam looked over, Balaam was a false prophet, and God forced him to bless the children of Israel. And he's looking, this is thousands of years ago, he's looking over the nation of Israel, and he says, I see them, I see this nation, I'm at the top of the rocks, he's on a cliff over looking Israel. And he sees, this is what he says he sees, a people who dwell apart and, and will not be reckoned among the nations. You see, Israel as a nation is God's chosen nation. And the fact that they're a nation again after 1967, or excuse me, after 1948, even though they're not all saved, that's not what I'm talking about, is a testimony to the truthfulness and faithfulness of God in his covenant promises with that nation. And Israel today is not reckoned among the nations. They are very peculiar and very weird in very in several very amazing ways. And at the time of the end, I believe the tribulation is going to be just like the wars in Daniel chapter 11. There will be a godly remnant. Uh, Daniel 12 says they'll, they'll run to and fro. They'll be searching in the book of prophecy, in the book of Daniel, and they will know what's going on. And that's what I find incredible about these prophecies and what God has opened up the eyes of his children to see. No matter how crazy the world gets, you know, this verse has just in my, been in my head over and over again. Jesus said, see, I have told you beforehand. So with that being said, with that very long introduction, now let's get to Daniel chapter 11. We have reached Mount Everest. And so the angel begins this vision. And he says, or this prophecy, he says, 
in the first year of Darius the Mede. Now, he's not saying that's when this took place, okay? This took place 536 BC, okay? However, he's just explaining, in the first year of Darius the Mede, remember the Mede who took over Babylon in Daniel chapter 5? I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him, most likely because Darius the Mede was very friendly to the Hebrews, to the children of Israel. He allowed them to go back to their city, help them rebuild their temple, things like that. And now I will tell you the truth, very important. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Very straightforward. There's going to be three more kings. Then there's going to be a fourth who will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong, through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire, not just Persia, the whole empire, everyone he controls, against the realm of Greece. Beloved, as we study secular history today, I want you to understand, I'm not an authority on secular history, and secular history is not inspired. But what is amazing is... I'm going to show you the sources today. They're all secular sources. Encyclopedia Britannica, Cambridge University. Secular history 100% confirms the prophecies in Daniel 11, down to the very minutia. And they don't even believe in God, most of the people writing these articles. That's really what's incredible. And so this first verse, this first prophecy is very straightforward. Three more kings after Cyrus, right, are going to arise in Persia. So you had Cyrus the Great, Cambyses II, Bardia, and Darius the Great. And I've got all this information here. You can study that more on your own time about that Persian history. Those were the three kings. But then he says there's going to be a fourth, and that fourth will be far richer than all of them. You see, those kings, all of them, specifically Darius the Great, I believe, they, they conquered a lot. They amassed great wealth, and then this fourth king, Xerxes, well, he inherited it all. And through his riches, because to really finance war, you need an immense amount of wealth, through his riches, he aroused the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And I, I really hope you're watching because this is a bit complex to follow today. This is certainly a video you want to watch. I brought up a video of Xerxes from the movie 300. You see, this is what's amazing about King Xerxes and about many of the prophecies today. They're some of the most famous stories in all of history. Really, truly, by the time we get to the end of Daniel chapter 11, you're going to see many people you might have just learned in high school about from a strictly historical perspective. It says, as soon as he becomes strong, through his riches, he stirred up the entire empire against the realm of Greece. If you watch the, mo the, the movie 300, it's not incredibly historically accurate, but that's what this whole movie is about. It's about King Xerxes coming into Europe. Uh, King Xerxes assembled an army of up to one million men. He was fabulously wealthy, right? He defeated Leonidas at the famous Battle of Thermopylae, and then he went into Greece. He sacked Athens. That was his whole purpose the entire time. And then he was turned around. He was beaten back from Greece and, and had to retreat to his own land. Okay? So it's it that prophecy is clearly fulfilled. Then it goes on to say, and a mighty king will arise. He will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. This is Alexander the Great. We went over this in Daniel chapter 8. 
It's he is the bronze in the statue of Daniel. He is the leopard in the beasts of Daniel chapter seven uh, that always comes after Medo Persia, which is the bear of Daniel chapter seven or the silver of Daniel chapter two. He Alexander the Great is that mighty king. And listen, I'm, I'm bringing up a historical statement from Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered Persia because he was angry that decades or a hundred years or more before Alexander was even born, Xerxes came into Greece. Unprovoked Xerxes came into Greece just to conquer. And this is a famous letter from this mighty king of Daniel 11 verse 3. He says, Alexander the Great says, your ancestors invaded Macedonia and the rest of Greece and did us great harm, though we had done them no prior injury. I have been appointed leader of the Greeks, and I've invaded Asia in the desire to take vengeance on Persia for your aggressions. Very straightforward. We know already, we've already, if you've been with us in Daniel chapter 8, Alexander the Great conquered Persia fiercely and quickly. A mighty king arose. He ruled with great authority. He did as he pleased. He totally crushed Persia. He conquered it so fast. That's why in Daniel chapter 7, the leopard, Greece, has four wings. He flies as fast as an eagle, just totally decimating this conquering world ruler Persia at the time. It then goes on to prophesy about Alexander the Great, another just massively famous historical figure, Alexander the Great. I mean, there's movies about this guy. Not enough good ones, but there's movies. <laughs> and so Daniel 11 verse 4 says, as soon as he has arisen, as soon as the mighty king of you know, Persia was aroused against the realm of Greece, a mighty king arose in Greece, he crushed Persia. This is now a prophecy about Alexander the Great, and it's the most detailed. It deserves the most of our attention and study. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up. Boom, that is a prophecy. Like that is that is scriptural truth. Alexander the Great conquered the whole world, and then there's differing historical accounts that go from five minutes to about four or five years. Some people literally believe five minutes after he conquered the world, he was dead. Other historical accounts say just a few short years. But the bottom line is, right after Alexander the Great conquered the world, he died. He was, I mean, it amazes me, the sovereignty of God. His kingdom was broken up. You see, he had a son and a potential half-brother. His enemies just killed them, okay? So they couldn't inherit his kingdom. It says his kingdom was broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants. Like I just said, his descendants were killed, nor according to his authority. No one ever ruled all of like, you know, uh, to India and parts of Europe and, and Syria and all that. No one ever ruled with his authority. It was broken up to four separate generals. We're going to talk about that in a second. It says his sovereignty was uprooted and given to others, multiple people besides them. And if you were with us in Daniel chapter 8, very straightforward prophecy. There was a ram that represented the kings of Medo-Persia. There was a shaggy goat. And it says in verse 21, that represented the kingdom of Greece. And the goat, Greece, conquered Medo-Persia. Very straightforward. And right after that, it said the male goat, Greece, magnified himself exceedingly. He conquered the world. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And that large horn was Alexander the Great. And then four conspicuous horns, four conspicuous rulers toward the four winds of heaven. So Daniel 11 is just giving us more detail into Daniel 8. 
And now, okay, I tried to sweep through the Greco-Persian Wars because we've already talked about it. Now we're going to move on. The crux of this whole video are the prophecies of the king of the north and the king of the south. But let me explain. When Alexander the Great died, his enemies killed his son, who was only one year old, uh, killed his half-brother, killed any potential heirs. And for decades, multiple generals fought over the land of Alexander the Great, but it eventually settled on four rulers. If you're watching, I'm not going to repeat all the rulers. I've done that, but there were four great generals. You know what? I'll do it. I lied. Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, okay? Four horns. So an amazing prophecy clearly fulfilled. They became the rulers of Greece, one towards the west, one towards the east, one towards the north, one towards the south. Now, I want you to hyper-focus on these two kings. We're not going to talk about Lysimachus or Cassander for the rest of the day. Put them out of your brain. Focus on Seleucus, the king of the north. He controlled Syria, Babylon, parts of Asia, and Ptolemy, the king of the south. Repeat that to yourself. Ptolemy is the king of the south, Egypt, down here. Seleucus is the king of the north. And the next rest of this video is all about the Ptolemy-Seleucid, the Syrian conflict. For about 130 years, they warred to control this little strip of land here of which Jerusalem was a part of. It was like Syria and Israel and the land kind of leading down into Egypt. They, they fought over this area. And so it's called the Ptolemaic Wars or the Syrian Wars. They're very famous in history. If you're a, you know, a history buff, you don't have to believe in Jesus to believe in the, serious, the Syrian Wars, right? This is all secular history. So we're going to start now. This is these prophecies con concerning these two kings. It says, then the king of the south, that is Ptolemy of Egypt, will grow strong. And, and I apologize if I get annoying today, if I keep repeating the same thing that the king of the south is Ptolemy. My, my viewers are on different wavelengths of, of biblical education, so I'm trying to make this very graspable for everyone. Okay, the king of the south, Ptolemy of Egypt, will grow strong along with one of his princes. Someone under him, a governor, a prince, will gain ascendancy over him. Very clear prophecy. He will obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion. Someone is going to come out from the king of the south and obtain a great dominion and, and even gain ascendancy over him. This was fabulously fulfilled. Ptolemy I, Soter, is the king of the south right now. Uh, that right now is very important. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But right now in verse 5, Ptolemy I is the king of the south. Seleucus I, Nicator, is the king of the north, the king of Syria, the king of the Seleucid Empire. Okay, very important. Seleucus, the king of the north, was made one of Ptolemy's generals and jointly with him commanded the Ptolemaic troops that defeated forces at Demetrius and several other forces at Gaza. You see, Seleucus came out from under Ptolemy. It says one of his princes will gain ascendancy over him. This is another very important picture. I'm going to try and leave this up the whole video, but I don't know if I'll be able to. I recommend you pause and come back here if you start to get confused. This is the king of the North's empire, Seleucus. He came out from under Ptolemy, just like it said. He gained ascendancy over him. Look how vast his empire is compared to the empire of the king of the South, which is the Ptolemaic empire. 
This is Jerusalem right here. Okay, we have to keep them center. They're, they're part of this. And this is the area they're constantly warring over. Sometimes the king of the north wins, sometimes the king of the south wins. This prophecy is very easy to understand when you realize this whole prophecy is just a story. The next like 15 verses are just a story of how these wars of about 130 years unfold. Now, it is so, so important that you understand this. This, this is key and that everything else is very straightforward. The titles, King of the South or King of the North, are interchangeable based on whoever rules at that time. So this is a complex graph. I'm not going to break down this whole graph, but you have to understand. The King of the South is Ptolemy right now, Ptolemy I. Then the King of the South will be his son, Ptolemy II. Then Ptolemy III. Then Ptolemy IV. Then Ptolemy V. It's very straightforward. It's always Ptolemy, but it's also the King of the South is his descendants. The King of the South is very easy to remember. It's always Ptolemy or one of his descendants. The king of the north is a little more complex, but not rocket science. The king of the north is always Seleucus at first, then his son Antiochus the first, then his son Antiochus the second, then there's a Seleucus the second, and then Antiochus. So the king, and this is through, you know, over a hundred years. This is generations of war that we're watching. So it's this, just the descendants of the king of the north and the descendants of the king of the south whoever is ruling at that time. So the king of the south is always Ptolemy. The king of the north is always Seleucus or Antiochus, okay? The king of Syria always ends with an S. Antiochus ends with an S, that is Syria. The king of, Selu uh, the, king of the north, uh, Seleucus, always end uh, Seleucus also ends with an S, right? So that's a good way to remember. But the bottom line, the king of the north and the king of the south are interchangeable titles based on the exact descendant that rules at that time. So let's move on now. Let's get deeper into the meat of this prophecy. After some years, they will form an alliance. The king of the north and the king of the south will form an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. There's a marriage given to bring about peace between two warring nations. That's really common in ancient history, right? She will not retain her position of power, though. The daughter of the king of the south will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. The king of the south won't remain with his power. Ptolemy will not remain with his power. But she, his daughter, will be given up, and the ones who brought her in, that's a very specific detail, and the one who sired her, that's her father, Ptolemy, as well as he who supported her in those times. This is a massively amazing prophecy that was fulfilled. Peaceful arrangement. The king of the south is now Ptolemy II, and he gives his daughter, this is a famous historical secular story, he gives his daughter, Berenice, to the then king of the north, which is now Antiochus Theos, okay, the Antiochus II, who divorced his current wife, Laodice. So Antiochus, the king of the north, has a wife named Laodice. The king of the south, Ptolemy II now, he gives his daughter Berenice to, to the king of the north, okay, with the hopes of basically gaining control over Syria in the long term. He wants control over that area by giving this, you know, bride. But it says she won't retain her power. 
Well, when the king of the south, Ptolemy II, died, Antiochus went back on his arrangement. He put Berenice away, the, the daughter of the king of Egypt, the daughter of Ptolemy II. He put her away, and he restored his old wife, Laodice, to the throne. So she did not retain her power. Amazing fulfillment. But then it says she'll be given up, along with those who brought her in, her attendants, and the one who sired her, her father. Her father's already dead now. And it says, and this is just a historical fact, Laodice, the original wife of the king of the north, Antiochus, uh, she was afraid she'd be divorced one day again, right? Antiochus already, you know, divorced her for Berenice. Now he's married her back again, in a sense. He's brought her back into his kingdom. And so she's afraid. So she killed her husband, Antiochus, and installed her son, Seleucus II Callinicus, on the throne of the north. So she kills Antiochus with poison. She installs her son, who's now the king of the north, Seleucus II. She then had Berenice, all of her children, and attendants killed in exact fulfillment of this prophecy. Go to Encyclopedia Britannica. This is fully confirmed in secular history as part of the Syrian wars that this played out. It is incredible, but, but we have to move on. One of the descendants of her, okay, one of the descendants of the murdered daughter of the king of the south, one of the descendants of Berenice, not Laodice, right? Berenice, the son, uh, Berenice's son, Ptolemy III, Eurgates, he now becomes the king of the south. So you have the king of the north, Seleucus, was just installed after this murder of Antiochus, right? He's now the king of the north. But then it says one of the descendants of the, the poisoned Berenice, right? One of the descendants of her line will arise in his, the king of the south's place. This is how Ptolemy III, okay? He was related to Berenice, okay? You're going to see that in a second. He will come against their army. So the, the king of the south, okay, is now uh, Ptolemy III. He will come against Seleucus II and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. This is amazing. It says, also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt. Okay, this is just the third Syrian war. There's a famous historian, Jerome, who basically says Ptolemy III was so angry about what happened to Berenice, he rushed into the north and he thought he might be able to save her, but she died. So he he conquered deeper into Syria, deeper into the north. He took 2,400 gold vessels and images and 40,000 talents of silver. Just like the prophecy said, he would conquer. He would take their gods with metal images, their precious vessels. He brings them back to Egypt. And then it says he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. But multiple commentators read this as he, the king of the south, Ptolemy III, will continue or live more years than the king of the, the, king of the north. And Ptolemy III lived four years past the king of the north, Seleucus II. So very, very straightforward historical fulfillments. Now, Ptolemy III, Eurgates, the former queen Laodice, I want to explain this story more. The former queen Laodice, okay, after killing Antiochus, she ordered her partisans to kill Berenice 
and her children who had taken refuge at Daphne near Antioch in Syria. She was, uh, and literally aroused by that murder, Ptolemy III, Berenice's brother, launched a successful war, the Third Syrian War, against Laodice and her son, Seleucus II, fulfilling Daniel chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, to the T, one of Berenice's descendants, her brother. This is like word for word from Encyclopedia Britannica. It says one of her descendants, right? And so we know she was poisoned historically. Ptolemy III was her descendant. He did exactly what the prophecy said. He went, he conquered, and he took great riches from the king of the north. From He, he went into Syria and did that. So now let's move on to the next prophecy. There are so many. And if you're a little bit frustrated about not understanding who the specific king is at the same time, I just want to offer a little encouragement. I was very frustrated as I was studying this. I had to read like 20 commentaries and listen to 10 different sermons. And even now I can get confused as I'm teaching it. So this is a chapter of the Bible that is complex, but through study and prayer and the Holy Spirit, you you can get it. So just be encouraged. Right now, try and just get the 30,000 foot view, the king of the north and the king of the south. And maybe after the fourth or fifth read through of the text, you'll start to be able to specifically remember the exact uh, details uh, with a little bit more uh, gravity. And so let's move on. Then the latter, the king of the north, Seleucus II, will enter the realm of the king of the south. This is very straightforward war, right? You have the king of the south making some gains, then the king of the north makes gains. If you're watching the Russia and Ukraine war right now, it's kind of like that. It's like, oh, Ukraine is into the Donetsk region and they're winning. And then Russia comes back and beats them. War is very back and forth. This is all this is saying here. It says Seleucus II will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. He will not have a great victory. Okay. His sons, this is important. He dies. His sons, multiple, the sons of the king of the north will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. This is very important. Very famous prophecy of a very famous war coming. The sons of Seleucus will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one of them, one of the sons, this is incredible prophecy, will keep on coming and overflow and pass through. He passes through Jerusalem. He passes through the lands that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. This prophecy is incredible. We got to take our time and break this down. The king of the north is Seleucus II. He died by falling off his horse, okay? It says his sons will raise together an army. Well, he had two sons historically, if you're watching. He had Antiochus III the Great and Seleucus III, okay? Seleucus III was assassinated in 223 BC. He was succeeded by his younger brother, Antiochus III the Great. A lot of this prophecy is now about the king of the north, Antiochus III, and the king of the south, which is always a Ptolemy. Now, so important, it's, the prophecy says his sons will amass this army, which they did, but one of them will keep on coming. It's so clearly prophetically fulfilled. Now that it's already happened and been fulfilled, one of the sons lived and one died a very early death. Decades before Antiochus the Great died, his brother died. And so one of them 
keeps on coming. This is happening hundreds of years before, and the details are striking. It says, this king of the north will return to his own land, and then his sons start to take action. Well, that's because he died by falling off a horse. But even though he has multiple sons, only one of them keeps on coming and attacking Egypt. And that's because Seleucus III died an early death, and Antiochus the Great took power. It's incredible. Now it gets even better. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. They did. One of them, Antiochus the Great, will keep on coming, overflow like a river and pass through with his armies that he can wage war up to the very fortress of the king of the south. Then it says, so there's a massive army now, okay, going through Syria, trying to get into Egypt. The king of the south, which is now Ptolemy IV, okay, it's Ptolemy, it's just his fourth son. Ptolemy IV will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Very important. Antiochus III the Great, Antiochus the Great is the king of the north. He has a massive army that he has built up. That's what the prophecy says hundreds of years before it happened. Right after that, it says the king of the south, Ptolemy IV of Egypt, is enraged. You have two leaders that are going forth and fighting in a great battle. Then it says the latter, Antiochus, the king of the north, will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former, Ptolemy, the king of Egypt. This is an incredibly straightforward prophecy that happened hundreds of years prior to its fulfillment. It's a very simple story. It says the king of the south, Egypt, is going to be angry because the king of the north is coming at him with a massive army. So he will raise an army and and the king of the north, excuse me, will have a great army, but the king of the south will win this battle. And, And the king of the north, his army, will be given to the king of the south. Like when you conquer an army, you don't always kill everybody. Sometimes you take many, many prisoners, they become your slaves, or you slaughter them at a later date after you've taken away their weapons so they don't you know kill some of your men trying to defend themselves the bottom line is it's a straightforward prophecy the king of the south and the king of the north are going to raise massive armies and they're going to have a giant battle and the king of the south egypt is going to win beloved this is incredible it's the battle of raffia my source is Cambridge University and Encyclopedia Britannica, and I don't, I don't know if they have any Christian affiliation. I don't believe they do. This is secular history. This is the Battle of Raffia. I highly, 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 one more time, highly recommend you watch a 10 or 15 minute documentary on YouTube. Just search on YouTube, the Battle of Raffia after watching this video. It's incredible. The King of the South, Ptolemy of Egypt, has 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. If you're watching or if you put your phone away, look at your phone real quick. I brought up like a famous, you know, there's a lot of famous pictures about this battle. So about 80,000 warriors between the infantry, the cavalry, and the elephants is the king of Egypt. The king of the north is Antiochus III. He has 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. And look what Cambridge University says. The Ptolemaic victory in the battle settled the dispute over Syria for 17 years. It was such a massive battle. It settled the dispute for almost two decades. And it says the king of the south, the Ptolemies, victory in the battle settled the dispute. Beloved, it is incredible. I mean, secular history confirms the prophecies of Daniel 11 to the very minutia. I mean, it just continues to blow my mind, okay? 
It then goes on to say in verse 12, when the multitude is carried away, when the king of the south, Ptolemy, carries away the multitude of the armies from the king of the north after beating them, his heart will be lifted up. He'll be prideful. He will cause tens of thousands to fall, all the multitudes of the, the armies of the king of the north, but he will not prevail. So very important. First of all, after his victory, it says his heart will be lifted up. Several times in scripture, even of Satan himself, I believe, it's when it says your heart is lifted up, it's talking about arrogance and pride. And very famously, the king of the south, Ptolemy, after his victory, he lived a very licentious life and he lost the respect of his people. He lived a life of drunkenness and lust and orgies and all these, you know, demonic false god type things that you get into. And he didn't really focus on governing his people and taking care of the nation. So he was actually hated more after his victory than before, which is pretty incredible. So that's the first prophecy that was fulfilled. But then it says, even though he has this amazing victory, he will not prevail. This is incredible. Well, why will he not prevail? It goes on to say, for the king of the north, Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, remember, in Cambridge University, it just confirmed that after the Battle of Raphia, it settled the dispute for like 17 years. Well, now it says the king of the north will eventually, after an interval of some years, come against him again with a great army and much equipment. And history shows us Antiochus, after being defeated at the Battle of Raphia, he spent like 10 or 15 years conquering the Parthians and, and other groups of people to the east and throughout Asia. And so he gained a lot of wealth through those that conquering. And he used that to once again try to retake Syria from Egypt after an interval of some years. Remember, this is written hundreds of years prior to it happening. And so he comes again with a great army and much equipment. Now it says in those times, the times where Antiochus comes back and tries to conquer Egypt, many will rise up against the king of the south. There was other kings that uh, the king of the north Antiochus came against the king of the south with. Now the king of the south is now Ptolemy V, king of Egypt. The king of the south is Ptolemy V. And it says many are going to rise up against the king of the south, okay? The violent ones, the robbers among your people, among the Jewish people, will also lift up themselves in order to fulfill this vision, to fill the vision, but they will fall down. They will not be successful. So th this prophecy in verse 14, very straightforward from Encyclopedia Britannica, okay? It says many will rise against the king of the south. Well, after the death of the king of the south, Ptolemy IV, Antiochus concluded a secret treaty with Philip V, who was the ruler of the Hellenistic kingdom of Macedonia, in which the two plotted the division and the conquering of Egypt, the conquering of the king of the south. This is from Encyclopedia Britannica. So many other nations rose up against the king of the south now in this, this next incursion against Egypt. And it says the violent ones among the Jewish people, the robbers, the rebels, also joined with the king of the north, essentially, uh, in order to, to break off the yoke and the rulership of the king of the south of Egypt, right? 
Look what Flavius Josephus wrote in the Antiquity of the Jews. I have my source here. He wrote, the Jews of their own accord, went. They, the Jews chose to go over to him, Antiochus. They received him into the city, Jerusalem, and gave plentiful provisions to all his army and to his elephants. Okay, this is what Flavius Josephus, who was a Jew, wrote of his own people. So this prophecy is clearly fulfilled in history. Many joined to rise up against the king of the south, which is now Ptolemy V, and the rebels amongst the Jewish people also did that but they wanted to get rid of the burden of the king of the south but it says they'll fall down they weren't actually successful you see Ptolemy wasn't immediately conquered he came back and actually slaughtered some of these rebels but furthermore they should have never ever uh, wanted to align themselves with Antiochus because his son one day would essentially turn out to be the worst persecutor of the Jews really up until the final Antichrist. He's sort of the Antichrist of the Old Testament. Uh, what's coming in, in the next video next week is sort of the Holocaust of the Old Testament. I mean, it's really bad. So bottom line, it, it was a horrible decision in fulfillment of that prophecy to support the king of the north by the Jewish people. But that being said, we're going to jump forward now. It says, Then the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, will come. The king of Syria, the king of the north will come. He will cast up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, their best generals, for there will be no strength to make a stand. So very straightforward, the king of the north is going to come into the king of the south and capture well-fortified cities, set up a siege, and they will not stand. History is a little fuzzy around this time, but it does seem pretty agreed upon. This is the Battle of Panium. Pan Panium? <laughs> the Battle of Panium, around 200 BC. It saw Antiochus take on a leading general, a choice troop, right, of the Egyptian armies. His name was Scopus, who after being beaten, he led 10,000 men to seek refuge at a city called Sidon, and they were sieged there and starved out. And, and Ptolemy, while they're being sieged, probably over several months, right? They're being starved out. There's a siege ramp. It's a well-fortified city, right? Ptolemy sent several choice troops and generals to save them, but they were not able to withstand Antiochus. So there was a massive victory won at the Battle of, of Panium. This was really the turning point of this war where Antiochus, the king of the north, as prophesied, is going to ultimately be successful. Like in, in these king of the north, king of the south battles, for the, the land of Syria, at least, it is clear from prophecy that the king of the south, Ptolemy, will be the loser. And that's exactly what happens. And so Antiochus captures this well-fortified city, and this is really a turning point, okay, of this whole war. But then it says, this is another fabulously fulfilled prophecy. He who comes against him, the king of the north, Antiochus, will do as he pleases. He's coming into these fortified cities. He's conquering parts of Syria, right? It says no one will be able to withstand him. He also stays for a time in the beautiful land, in Israel, with destruction in his hand. So he's conquering. He's winning wars. He is capturing well-fortified cities. Nobody can withstand him. He's, he's conquered most of, uh, you know, Syria, southern Syria, the major area they're warring for at this point. And this is from Encyclopedia Britannica. Look what it says. When peace was concluded in 195, so it's not that Antiochus went all the way through Egypt and conquered Egypt, okay? It was a war over the land of southern Syria. Antiochus came 
permanently into possession of southern Syria. Go back up a few verses and read. When Ptolemy was winning the battle, it says he will not be successful overall. It says he will not prevail. Ultimately, the king of the north wins these wars. Antiochus came permanently into possession of southern Syria, which had been fought over for a hundred years plus by the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. So another very straightforward, fulfilled prophecy, okay? Daniel eleven seventeen then goes on to say, it gets even deeper. He, Antiochus the Great, the king of the north, will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom. So after he conquered Syria, Antiochus wanted, had plans to conquer all of Egypt. He now wanted to, to uh, you know, on the heels of victory, he's prideful. He wants to humiliate Egypt. He wants to conquer all of them. And so it says he sets his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom. He brings with him a proposal of peace, which he puts into effect, a false peace, right? And he gives him the daughter of women to ruin it. Beloved, this is ridiculous, okay? Of the Syrian wars, it, it's written in the Bible that there will be two brides offered to, to offer priests. One we talked about earlier was Berenice. This next one's name is Cleopatra. It doesn't talk about three brides. It doesn't talk about seven women or seven peace agreements. Secular history confirms there were exactly two times during the Syrian wars this happened. The Bible prophesies both of them. It's incredible. Look at this. It says, he brings a proposal of peace and the daughter of woman, the most lovely among women, his own daughter, to ruin it. He actually wants to destroy Egypt, wants to have power. And as part of trying to gain power, he brings this false proposal of peace and says, here, take my daughter. And in stunning prophetic detail, Antiochus gave his daughter, Cleopatra, in marriage to Ptolemy V, the king of the north gives his daughter, Cleopatra, to Ptolemy V, the king of the south, in 193 BC. He did this so Ptolemy would not align himself with Rome, because Antiochus is now at war with Rome also, and skirmishing with Rome over the islands of different areas of Greece and different land he wants. He doesn't want Ptolemy in Egypt to join with Rome, so he gives his daughter to Ptolemy of Egypt, and so he does that to have control of Egypt and ruin it, right? But it says she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. This is incredible. It's, it's confirmed by secular history. Cleopatra, the daughter of the king of the north, you know, was faithful to her husband, fell in love with Ptolemy V, the king of the south. And so Cleopatra was faithful to her husband, not to her father Antiochus. So his plans, he, want, he probably wanted to hear all the secrets of the kingdom, wanted her to help rule and turn the heart of Ptolemy V in subjection to Antiochus or all these other things. She was faithful to her husband, not her father. So it, 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 she did not take a stand for Antiochus and was not on his side. It's incredible. Then the prophecy goes on to say, then he, Antiochus the Great, will turn his face to the coastlands, the, the islands, essentially, especially near Greece. History confirms this, and he will capture many. So Antiochus the Great is most likely upset. He's not going any further into Egypt. His plans fail. So he's still a conqueror. He still wants to win. And so he starts capturing islands near, you know, Greece and, and, and kind of bordering on Rome and all that stuff, right? And, and Rome had mostly conquered Greece at this time. You know, this is the setting up of these 
these Hellenistic kingdoms, so it's not 100% clear, but he captured many islands and, and many areas, okay? And it says, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him, and he will repay him for his scorn. And this is a famous story as well. The Roman commander, Lucius Cornelius Scipio, and it's amazing that we're getting into Rome now, because they're one of the final kingdoms, right, of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Now we're getting to the time period of like 170 BC, 180 BC, 190 BC, 200 BC, right? We're, we're moving further away from those Greco-Persian wars. So now the Roman commander Lucius defeated Antiochus the Great at the Battle of Magnesia. You see, Rome told Antiochus, back off these islands, stop conquering in this direction. Antiochus said no, and at the Battle of Magnesia, they defeated Antiochus the Great. This is a statement of secular history. I'm going to read it out from uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica. I haven't altered it other than to add this first little yellow line here. Um, it, it says, very important, he, the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, that's all I added. So this is the statement from Encyclopedia Britannica. He was decisively defeated in the Battle of Magnesia near Mount Sipolis, where he fought with an army of 70,000 men against only 30,000 Romans and their allies. Although he could have continued the war in these eastern promises, Antiochus renounced all claims to his conquests in Europe and in Asia Minor, west of the Taurus, at the Peace Treaty of Apamea. He was also, this is so important, this is going to open up in the next verse and blow your mind. Just, just wrap your head around this. Antiochus was forced to pay 15,000 talents over a period of 12 years. So a massive war reparation, 15,000 talents of silver over 12 years. He had to surrender his elephants and his fleet and give the, give the Roman commander hostages. Even his own son, Antiochus IV, for a time became a hostage of Rome. His kingdom was now reduced to just Syria, Mesopotamia, and western Iran. You see, Antiochus the Great turned his face to the coastlands and captured many, but a commander put a stop to all of that and repaid him. Very straightforward. This next verse was fulfilled in such ridiculously clear detail, it blows my mind. Daniel eleven nineteen. I get happy with these prophecies. <laughs> I get so overjoyed. Daniel eleven nineteen. So he, the king of the north, I hope you're watching. There's important pictures up, famous busts of, of Antiochus the Great. So he, the king of the north, will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land. The Roman commander embarrassed him. Okay, he he conquered him, and he may any any he, now he's he's in a massive amount of debt. Okay, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. He will die after turning his face toward the fortress of his own land. This is ridiculous. This is from Encyclopedia Britannica. In 187 BC, Antiochus was murdered in his own land in a Baal temple, a fortress of his own land near Susa, near Iran, in his own land, just like the prophecy said, he was exacting tribute in order to obtain much needed revenue. 
Daniel 11:18 says the king of the north Antiochus will be repaid for his scorn. He'll be beat and conquered. Okay. Secular history shows us uh, that Antiochus was beaten by Lucius and then he had to pay massive war reparations. Then Daniel 11:19 says he's going to go towards the fortresses of his own people, his own land and stumble and fall. And so he went back to his own land. He was defeated. He needed a massive amount of money to pay Rome. In his own land, he goes into a fortress. He goes into a temple of Baal, a Babylonian temple, and the people are so upset with him, they come out and murder him. Just like the prophecy said, he was beaten, he went into his own land, he went into a fortress in his own land, and he died all hundreds of years before the fulfillment. Every word of God is true. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. One final prophecy, and then we'll finish up. Very straightforward. Then in his place, in the place of the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, one will arise. The eldest son of Antiochus was Seleucus IV, Philippator. Seleucus IV, the eldest son of Antiochus, rose, who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Okay? Send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Well, why would he do that? History tells us he needed money. That word oppressor can mean an exactor of tribute or taxes. The Seleucid Empire still had to pay Rome, and much of that revenue came from the Jewish people, the jewel of his kingdom. It came from his rich people, which the jewel of the kingdom could be talking, or it could be talking about the beautiful land, the Jewish people. Okay, And so it, throughout all of his land, which included Jerusalem at the time, he, you know, uh, uh, the king of the north at this time, Seleucus IV, sent an oppressor, an exactor of tribute or taxes. Okay? Uh, much of that revenue came from the Jewish people living in Israel and Palestine. Second Maccabees is an apocryphal book. It's helpful for history. It's not inspired. But I really encourage you, read chapter 3 of Second Maccabees. Maccabees, just Google it, 2 Maccabees chapter 3. It'll blow your mind. It chronicles not only attempted taxation, but also robbery. An oppressor was sent through the jewel of the kingdom, Jerusalem. Robbery of the Jewish temple during this time by Heliodorus, sort of the vice president under the king of the north, the first, you know, his, his lead guy, went through the kingdom, wanted to raise taxes. He even wanted to rob the Jewish temple. But in the book of 2 Maccabees chapter 3, it basically says an angel in a vision came and beat up a Heliodorus, and the high priest actually had to pray for mercy for Heliodorus so, so he wouldn't go insane. And Heliodorus did not ultimately robbed the temple of the Jews. So I find that just fascinating. We don't know if that's fully true, uh, but I tend to believe it is because God's children were still in Jerusalem at this time. And so, um, you know, Second Maccabees chapter 3 really brings this to light. Um, but then it goes on to say, so then in his place, one will arise. So Lucas the fourth arose. He sent an oppressor, a, a taxation, a taxer, an, an oppressor, an exactor of tribute, through the jewel of his kingdom, all throughout his kingdom and into Jerusalem to raise money. Then the verse says, within a few days, he only ruled for about a decade, whereas his father ruled for 37 years. He will be shattered, though not in anger and not in batter, battle. Excuse me. So it says this final king here, will uh, Seleucus IV, the king of the north, will be shattered, not in anger, not in battle. And Seleucus was assassinated in 175 BC by his chief minister, the exactor of tribute, Heliodorus. His brother Antiochus seized the throne, and he was most likely killed by poison, 
The next verse goes on to say, this is where we'll stop here, but then I want to explain just a few verses to you guys. The next verse goes on to say, in his place shall arise a vile person. In his place shall arise a vile person. This is Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, who is right now a hostage, but is going to be freed and become the Hitler and the Antichrist of the Old Testament, essentially. He is a great foreshadowing of the Antichrist. He is a vile person, and, and there are many, many specific prophecies about him. But for right now, I just want to close with a few verses I think are so important. Psalm 74, God has established all the boundaries of the earth, all the boundaries of the nations, and we have seen that today in his massive sovereignty and prophesying the Greco-Persian Wars, the Syrian Wars, the, the Seleucids, Ptolemies, Antiochus the Great, all of it. He prophesied about it. And I think it's so important to understand this. Why does God give us these prophecies? Yes, it is to show his sovereignty. It's also to comfort his true children. Listen to Jesus. He says, he's prophesying. He's telling his sheep, they're going to make you outcasts from the synagogue. And an hour is coming that everyone who kills you will actually think he's offering service to God because they have no idea who God or Jesus is. They don't know the Father or me. And so Jesus prophesies, people are going to kill you. He's talking to his children. He's talking to his sheep. I'm not going too deep into this right now. I just want to close with this. And he says, the people that kill you, they're going to think they're offering service to God. And then look at what he says to them. I'm telling you these things. I've spoken these things to you so that when that hour comes, you may remember I told you of them. And these things I, I didn't say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I want you to know when I'm gone, I told you all these horrible things were coming. And so this is to comfort the saints. In Matthew 24, we hear of horrible things of the end times, the tribulation, wars, rumors of war, uh, murder, treachery, false Christ, false prophets. And before all of it, look what he says. He says, or, or after all of it, he says, behold, I have told you in advance. This verse has been ringing throughout my head all week. This is why God gave Daniel 11 to the Jews who were dealing with all that at the time, his children. He gives it to us now to study it so we know how massively in control of everything he is and all the prophecies of the end times or any tribulation we will go through before we die and meet Jesus. This is what he says. He says, behold, I've, I've told you in advance. It's incredible. It's meant for comfort. John 16, Jesus says, the, after saying they're going to be killed and people that kill them are going to think, oh, oh, look, Lord, look, I'm, I'm killing this, this blasphemer. I'm, I'm worshiping God by killing one of his children, the height of hypocrisy. Uh, Jesus says at the very end of that chapter, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Beloved, there is no peace outside of Christ. There is no peace in hoping you never go through the tribulation or a tribulation, right? Like just a tough time. There's no peace in hoping you never have to go through anything harsh because you just don't know. The peace is in Christ. In fact, he actually promises in the world, you will have tribulation. And the apostles said through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. We should not run towards them. We should also not run away from them. If they come, we should just beg God for the grace to withstand them. But if you're looking for peace, it is not in the hope that they will not happen. It is in the hope 
that God is sovereign and the peace is found in Christ and in what he has done for you and what he is going to do for you in the future. It's all in Christ. So he says, take courage. In this world, you're going to have tribulation, but here's some courage. I have overcome the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith in Christ. I hope this video edified you. And next week, we'll move on uh, with Daniel chapter 11.